The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week, and it is a pleasure to be back in the friendly confines of my home studio. I was in Anaheim, California last week. We did a podcast on location at the NAM conference, but it is good to be back here again with the microphones that I'm familiar with and the mixing board that I'm familiar with, and just uh, just back in here. Oh my God, like... Um, it is, it was so cool to be at NAMM. Don't get me wrong. It was cool to be alongside all those people and right in the middle of a, you know, a bustling conference with a bunch of music industry movers and shakers. I got to meet so many cool people. It was a networking dream come true. Um, but it's just so much easier when you are in control of everything. Like all I brought, um, in terms of podcasting production, cause we did do a, a remote from NAMM. But all I brought was my travel mic and my Mac computer to record the whole podcast, and it was just unwieldy. Like, I was in the media room, and we're trying to record, um, and I recorded with uh, Evan and Elisa, who were awesome. Thanks to you guys very much for joining me on that podcast, uh, my L.A. people. Um, I also had the metal band IDSFA on the show, and if you haven't heard that interview, oh my God, you need to go back and listen to it. It was nuts. These guys were so awesome, and I'm... I'm constantly trying to figure out, I've been spending the last few weeks just trying to figure out how I can use these guys more in the future. Like this cannot be the last time that the amazing, crazy monsters from IDSFA are on my show. And so if you have any ideas out there as to what IDSFA can do for the show, let me know. Send me an email, breakthebusiness at gmail.com because um, you guys loved them. You guys were sending me tweets and emails saying we want more of IDSFA. And so I, I don't want that to be the last time they're on the show, but, um, all of that being said, you know, it was so busy. It was so crazy. There's so many people talking. There's a convention going on as we're recording and it's, it, it was, it was, it was unwieldy. It's hard to kind of keep control of everything in an environment like that. So it was fun, but it's nice to be back in a controlled environment back in the studio where I'm familiar with everything and, the, I'm intimately more familiar with the equipment and there's not people talking around the conference and okay, it's just good to be back in so many words. Um, if you want to reach out to the podcast, you can email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. If you email me, uh, you can send me questions that you want either me or the guests that we have on each week to answer on the show. Um, if you want to send any comments about anything that we've talked about, if I like your comment, if I think it's interesting, even if you don't agree with me, I'll read it on the air and we'll talk about it. Um, with whoever's in the podcasting studio here at the time, uh, you can, uh, follow me on Twitter at Ryan K A I R. Um, it's a great way to find out when new episodes come up on the podcast, which they usually do every Sunday or Monday. Um, but you know, I also just post a lot of music business news. I post a lot of tips for indie artists. I, you know, I add some of my own tips. I find uh, tips from other blogs that I'll retweet. Um, and I have great conversations with my listeners. So yeah, uh, be sure to uh, follow me on Twitter at Ryan K A I R. And those are the two best ways to get in touch with me. And, um, if you want to help the podcast out, we've been doing this for about five months now. It's been so much fun. It's been so great interacting with the listeners. And if you've liked what you've heard and you just want to kind of help the podcast out a little bit, you can rate review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, those are the two places where the podcast lives. And anytime you throw us a nice rating, anytime you throw us a review or even just subscribing to the podcast, so you get it each week. Every time a new episode comes up, that stuff really helps. So again, that's break the business podcast. It's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud. Check it out, please. Our guest this week, I am stoked to have this guy on. He's a friend of mine. I've known him for a few years. His name is Andrew Kusevitsky. Uh, Andrew Kusevitsky, he is a rock musician and an entertainment lawyer because every lawyer I have to have on the show has to be cooler than me. Um, this guy is super cool. Um, let me give you guys a little bit of backstory if you don't know um, much about Andrew Kusevitsky because he's a cool guy that you want to get to know um, and he's a good follow on Twitter, so uh, check him out. But Andrew, um, he's an entertainment lawyer. He's a criminal lawyer based out of L.A. Um, I knew him when he was Miami-based. 
Um, but he's doing some cool stuff in LA now with the law. But in his other life, he was the drummer for a rock band called Stellar Revival. This was a great band. Um, there, they you can uh, check out their latest album on iTunes. It finally came out in 2015, and I say finally because this album entitled "Love, Lust, and Bad Company" took four years to make it to the public. Why? Well, here's the backstory. Andrew's band, Stellar Revival, was signed to Capitol Records, um, you know, an imprint of one of the three major labels going right now. So he was signed. He had a record deal with his band. He achieved what, you know, so many musicians want, that coveted, blessed record deal. What did he get out of it? Well, they made the album, and because of industry politics, corporate balance sheets, label mergers, a bunch of stuff outside of both Andrew and Stellar Revival and the fans' control— the album never saw the light of day. Capitol Records shelved it for four years, despite the fact that it was critically acclaimed. Because I know maybe you, you folks are saying, oh, maybe the album wasn't any good. No, by any measure, the album was a great album. It was critically acclaimed. There were a bunch of fans um, clamoring for it. There were Stellar Revival fans out there saying, we want this album. Why won't the label release it? And the label just never did. They shelved it for four years. And it wasn't until... The label experience was over for Stellar Revival that they finally were able to release this album. But, you know, Andrew's story underlies one of the things that frustrates me the most about record deals and the way that the label-centered music industry has worked for so many years is it the label acts as a gatekeeper between music creators and music consumers and gets to decide, sometimes arbitrarily, whether a song gets to be heard by consumers. Instead of you know, having the artists speak directly to the fans and give the fans directly what they want. You have this gatekeeper in the way who might decide, well, it's not in our business interest for you to hear this album, so you're never going to hear it. And that stinks. And I mean, thankfully it had a happy ending of sorts and that the fact that you can now hear this album, but the fact that it took four years for it to come out underlies one of the things that frustrates me the most about the record label experience, but don't let me tell the story. We're going to have Andrew on in the next segment. This guy is great, um, and he's going to have some great insight for the indie artists out there, and he's the first guy we've had on this show who can give us a true firsthand account of major label life. So stick around for that. That's coming up in the next segment. Before we bring in Andrew, uh, let me just talk a little bit about the book that's finally out. Um, and uh, by the way, I'm so thankful to everybody who has uh, purchased it so far. I hope you're enjoying it. If you have any uh, thoughts you want to share with me about the book, you can email me, break the, break the business at gmail.com or uh, tweet at me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R. This is my first book and I am legitimately interested in what you guys think of it. And I want it to be the best book it can be for you. And I want to uh, make sure that book number two, whenever I... Uh, lose my mind enough to write another book again is something that you also enjoy. So I certainly appreciate your thoughts. Um, I didn't get to talk as much about the book last week because it was Nam and it was busy and I had the crazy band of uh, monster musicians, <laughs> IDSFA in the room. And uh, But now that we're in a quiet studio location, uh, I can talk to you a little bit about the book. It came out last week. It's called Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. It's available now on Kindle at what I think is the fair price of $7.99. Um, the paperback's coming out real soon, in the next couple weeks or so. And uh, a little later after that, uh, there's going to be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read because, you know, you've, despite the fact that you've been told it's fundamental, uh, you just want to have somebody else, uh, i.e. me, read it to you, there'll be an audiobook out soon. We're in the process of putting that together for you. But I'm so excited for this to come out. We've been waiting months um, and, you know, it took me so long to write it and it's just cool to see it out there and to put myself out there. And um, I am happy with the response. Uh, so many of you have written very nice reviews on Amazon for the book and that's uh, very touching. I mean, just, you know, especially the ones that come from musicians because that's who this book is written for. I think it's a good read for anybody who's interested in the music industry but I think musicians will get a lot out of it. And so when I see a musician write a nice review about the book on Amazon, it is so humbling and so gratifying. And I really appreciate it. And, you know, it's scooting along quite nicely. It was, uh, when it, uh, at some point last week, uh, it was the number two new music business book on Amazon. 
which blew me away. I didn't think I was going to be in the top anything of anything in any genre or category on Amazon. So when I saw the ranking for new music business books on Amazon and I saw my book there, I was blown away. And uh, yes, it was number two. It was not number one. Um, I, uh, the number one book was uh, L.A. Reid's new book. A word of advice for authors out there. If you're going to write a book about the music industry, don't put it out the same week that L.A. Reid you know, puts his book out because uh, you're going to get your butt kicked by one of the great legends of the music industry, uh, L.A. Reid, a very famous music executive. Um, but you, can, I can take solace in the fact, and I hope you will all uh, feel good for me, that the book is the number one new, new music business book uh, written by somebody not named L.A. Reid. Or as I said on Twitter, it's the number one new music business book, according to Steve Harvey. Uh, it's a Miss, uh, Miss Universe joke. Have fun with that. But uh, I'd love for you guys to check it out. Uh, give you a quick summary of what the book's about. If you're kind of wondering um, what I'm saying in the book, a lot of it is stuff that we emphasize on the podcast, but in much more detail. Uh, the first chunk of the book and really where the break the business name comes into, it's about why you should avoid a record deal. And I think Andrew Kusevitsky is going to talk a little bit about um, some of the negative aspects of labels, but this book really goes into detail of a lot of the problems that standard record deals provide. And it goes on for about uh, five or six chapters in that. And uh, once it has appropriately scared you with the perils of record deals, uh, the book then goes into how to make it as an indie artist. If you're not going to sign that deal, what are you going to do? What's the other option? The other option is to take control of your career, take advantage of modern technology that the new music industry offers and be the captain of your own ship. Uh, start something new and uh, have a new music business model where you're the center, you're the CEO, you're the boss. And that's certainly not easy and it's not it's not a simple path, but I think this a lot of the stuff in the book is going to give you a lot of guidance. And granted, it's not just me giving you the advice in this book. I'm not a musician. Um, I'm actually wearing a shirt right now that I got at NAMM that literally says world's okayest musician. So I'm not, uh, I, you know, I don't have that music from a musician standpoint, uh, perspective, I should say. But what I did do is I interviewed some of the coolest, most successful indie artists, um, out there and got their insight, um, both indie artists as well as other indie music figures. A lot of them who've been in this podcast, uh, Mary Jennings, she talked, she, we, I, uh, I interviewed her for the book. Um, Rachel Sage, a very accomplished uh, indie musician who has her own entertainment company. The band Love Betty, music manager Eric Sussman, who works with Amanda Palmer. Natalie Gelman, who's been on the podcast before. And Kim, Kim Bookbinder, who's also a tremendous artist who's done so many things in different forms of media. Um, those are some of the people that I've interviewed for this book, who I quote in this book and give great insight and so even though I'm not a musician, I got a ton of musicians in there who've given uh, great stuff on how to achieve uh, your goals as an indie artist. The book goes into detail on all the different sectors that you need to achieve as an indie art to achieve success as an indie artist. It talks about recording. It talks about distributing your recordings. It talks about promoting your music and your overall career as an entertainer. It goes into a lot of detail about social media, websites, working with publicists, it talks a lot about how to fundraise for your career. Money is a big, big part of uh, achieving as an indie artist. Even though all the things that one needs to have an indie music career are cheaper than they've ever been, it's cheaper than ever to record music, it's cheaper than ever to distribute music, and it's certainly cheaper than ever to promote your music thanks to social media, there are still plenty of things in the music industry that cost money. And so this book goes into detail about how you can raise money as an artist, both by selling merchandising, but more importantly, and more uh, currently with today's technology, by crowdfunding, using websites like Kickstarter and Patreon to fund your projects and to get your fans invested in your success. Um, finally, that section of the book also talks about how to build your operation as an artist. Um, no artist can do it on their own. Even though you're an independent artist, it does not mean you're alone in your career. You're going to need friends along the way. You're going to need professionals to help you out. And the book talks about how to get these people, and more importantly, when is the right time in your career to get these people, and how to pay for them. People like managers, people like lawyers, people like publicists, publishing administrators, booking agents, uh, or even just what I call the three Fs, your friends, family, and fans, how to get those people invested in your career, and how to make the most of the things that they can provide you. So there's a lot going on in that book. 
it's written in a way that it's not, you know, it's, it's written for musicians. So you're not going to see a lot of crazy legal jargon in there, even though I'm a lawyer. Um, and if there is legal jargon in there, I explain it in layperson's terms because this book is not a book for lawyers. It's a book for you, the musician and people who love musicians and have musicians in their life that they want to help out. So, all right, that's my spiel. Break the business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. You can get it on Kindle. Um, most of all, thank you so much for just listening to the podcast, being a part of, um, this movement, not a movement that I've started by any means, this indie artist movement, but a movement that I feel a part of. And by listening to this podcast, it shows that you're a part of it too. And, um, you know, hopefully that what I've written can play at least a small role in what I think is a revolution in the music industry. And, um, it's a, a thrill to be a part of it and to join the journey with the rest of you. So, uh, check it out on Kindle. That's break the business. And, uh, you know, maybe we can, uh, you know, make some waves and, uh, either way, uh, the podcast is still here and it's always going to be free. Um, so, you know, you can keep listening to it and, uh, thank you very much for listening to it. In the next segment, we got Andrew Kusevitsky coming up. Thanks very much for listening to the break the business podcast. Are you an independent artist looking to promote a recent release or crowdfunding campaign? If so, the Break the Business podcast would love to help you out by giving you a shout-out on the air. Email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com and tell us about yourself and your project. It won't cost you anything. We're just looking for a way to give back to the artistic community that's given us so much. Again, that's breakthebusiness at gmail.com for a free shout-out. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Break the Business Podcast. He is a rock musician and attorney originally from Miami, Florida. He was a member of the band Stellar Revival, which was signed to Capitol Records. The band's critically acclaimed debut album, Love, Lust, and Bad Company, was released in 2015 and can be found on iTunes. He now practices entertainment and criminal law in Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Kusevitsky is on the Break the Business Podcast. Andrew, thank you for being on with us. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Glad to be here. Of course. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, I'm going to tell you something that I told uh, a guest we had on a couple weeks ago. Uh, Her name was Erin Jacobson. She's also an entertainment lawyer uh, in Los Angeles. And I'm going to tell her the same thing I told you, which is you seem like a really cool lawyer. I mean, I shouldn't even say seem because, (laughs) I mean, you're a rock musician and you're a lawyer and... I'll admit that frustrates me because I'm also a lawyer and I'm a lawyer because I had to be uncool for my whole life. You know, I had to be picked last in sports and I had to be uncool and I had to, you know, just go through that nerd life, always thinking in the back of my head, it's all going to be worth it because I'll be a lawyer someday. Meanwhile, people like you and Aaron get to be super cool and a lawyer. How is that possible? I think you found a loophole in life. (laughs) That's hilarious, Ryan. Well, I'll tell you what. I became a lawyer as a backup plan to hoping and uh, trying to become a musician. And I I was a nerd growing up, too. I was a band nerd. I was in marching band my whole life. So, you know, it's not that far off. It's fine. I, I got a lot of a lot of flack growing up for being a band nerd and, you know, that one time in band camp, you know, a lot of those kind <laughs> of jokes. So I, I understand. Uh, I think a lot of us attorneys uh, have some sort of uh, – you know, nerdy past, uh, to, to work with, uh, you know, but in terms of how I became a musician and then be, uh, came a professional in the, in the legal field, I was in a band called Westview, uh, and we were coming to the end of our run. This was in about 2004. And I just decided that I wanted a serious backup plan. And my mother was in my ear a lot about, taking on a serious backup plan to music. And at that point I'd been in more than half a dozen bands and none of them seemed to work out for various reasons. So I just decided to go into law school and I had always been very intrigued and interested in the law. I was a legal studies major in undergrad at Nova Southeastern university in Davie, Florida, which isn't too far from where you are in Miami. And I had always had a interest in the law and because I felt that it was important to have a backup plan professionally, 
I took on law. So, you know, there you have it. <laughs> um, I, uh, among the many bands that you've been in your life, you were a, a former member of the band Stellar Revival, which was signed to Capitol Records. Uh, uh, how did how did your band uh, catch the attention of a major label? Sure. Well, I joined in Stellar. Uh, I joined Stellar Revival in 2008 during my first semester of law school, and maybe a year after that, we had only played one show, maybe two shows. We decided that we wanted to try and take the project further, so we just reached out to a few people who we thought could help us. One of the people was Brian Howes. He's a producer up in Vancouver, Canada, and he took a liking to our band and our music and basically just handed us over to Capitol Records. I'm not trying to simplify it or dumb it down, but that's really what happened. Uh, That's how it occurred for us. Now, we were all in individual bands before Stellar Revival, developing our skills, nurturing our talents. Uh, it took us probably you know, 15, 20 years each to get to the point where we were in a project that was able to get signed so seamlessly. But in terms of the Stellar Revival project, it happened really quick and it was very simple. I, not to simplify it again, but that's just exactly what happened. A real grind to major label life, it sounds like. Exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. I mean, you, you, it, you know, of course, you did pay your dues uh, you know, through your experience with the other bands. And we're going to talk about your experience with Capitol Records in a moment. But first, uh, my curiosity is getting the best of me. Well, and I have to ask. Uh, do you have any cool rock star stories? Did you, have you met anyone cool, you know, from that life? Have we met anyone cool from that life? We got to play with a lot of cool bands that we really looked up to. We played the Download Festival in London, and we played with Metallica. We played with Black Sabbath, uh, a couple other bands that I really liked. Uh, bands like Devil Driver were there. It was just it was it was amazing to see those bands playing on the same stage that you were playing, you know, just a couple hours before and to meet those, you know, heroes of yours. That was pretty amazing. That was probably my favorite single gig we ever did, to be honest, just because of the magnitude and the other artists that we shared the stage with. In terms of meeting uh, anyone else that was really cool to us, we toured with some bands that were really cool that had some specific members that were really friendly with us. Um randomly uh we toured with theory of a dead man for a few months and they have a guitar player dave and dave is probably the nicest musician i've ever met he was super cool to all of the members of stellar revival and that was our first tour we had ever gone out on and he kind of took us under our wing and showed us the ropes so you know you, you meet a lot of cool people out on the road though whether they're in the music industry whether they're just locals that lived in you know different towns that you're traveling through you know, there's there's a lot of cool people out there that we got to meet uh, during our experience. So to just uh, pin it down to other musicians or whatever, it's hard because we came across so many cool people. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the album that Stellar Revival um, was putting out as a band, Love, Lust, and Bad Company. Um, this was a critically acclaimed album. Dedicated Rocker Society called it an impressive rock album full of powerful, heavy, but very catchy rock songs. But... Despite the fanfare that this album seemed to have, um, both from the fans who were clamoring to hear it, as well as from the rock community, Capitol Records had your album for several years and never released it. Uh, Firework Magazine noted, Love, Lust, and Bad Company is a gem of an album and a forgotten classic, and and it remains utterly criminal that this record had been buried for four years. The whole saga provides yet another reason why the music industry remains as clueless as ever about good music. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, we were pretty much a victim of the music industry and the transformation it's currently going through. Uh, I mean, there's no nice way to put it. Artists aren't making as much money as they used to. And because of that, uh, the labels aren't making as much money. And no one is making as much money. The industry has shrunk uh, in half, I've heard from many. So the fact that Every record label seems to be eating each other right now. I think there's three record, uh, th- three major record labels left right now. I think at one point there was like eight or nine. Um, so we were signed to Capital. That was a subsidiary of EMI. And EMI, during our tenure with Capital, got absorbed by Universal. 
And when Universal took on the EMI catalog, they basically cleared house of uh, an entire wave of artists that had recently been signed, um, spanning all genres, but particularly the rock and roll genre got hit hard in that. Um, we're friends with other bands who suffered through that, um, you know, who, who were on Capital and Virgin and, you know, are now having to be independent because their deals fell through. Uh, it's, it was a tough time, uh, but we were just really a victim of a merger, as, as, you know, as simple as I can put it. Uh, beyond that, we were a rock band. Being a rock band in 20, you know, 12 is is was really tough. Uh, the rock community hasn't been getting the love from the labels for quite some time, and because of that, to go out and tour became less likely because you weren't getting the tour support you needed. Getting the proper push at radio was really hard because record labels weren't giving any money to the bands to go to radio. And beyond that, it was just uh, you know a pop world, an EDM world, an urban hip hop world right now. And I, I do believe rock will come back and have its moment. Uh, I just don't see it happening anytime in the near future. Well, but that's basically what happened with us in terms of of why that record was made, and and it seemed to have a lot of positive uh, positive reaction to it. But you know, when you have two major, major companies pretty much uh, merging, a lot gets lost in that, and we were a victim of that. Well, it, um, and I think victim is the apt word. And I would say this: not only was Stellar Revival a victim of record label balance sheets and you know changes happening in the industry, but your fans were a victim too. And one of the things I agree, that yeah. yeah, one of the things that happens with major labels where. Um, we have an industry where the label is essentially the gatekeeper and you have a situation where, you know, Stellar Revival wants to show a record to its fans and Stellar Revival's fans are clamoring quite loudly for that album and the label just decides it's not cost effective. And so neither the creator nor the consumer gets to experience this art. And yeah, it, yeah. it underlies a, a huge problem with uh, this label model. And remember artists out there, when it comes, most record deals the record company is not obligated to release any material for you. When you sign that deal, there's nothing, you know, un unless there's some kind of guaranteed release provision, and even those can be sort of, you know, uh, ambiguous. Um, there's nothing obligating the label to put out the record for you. And there are many uh, artists who don't even get as far as Stellar Revival did, where the album just never even gets made. Um, and you just sort of just sit around in a, a label purgatory for, uh, you know, can be years. And you know, art and the, and your fans never get to experience your music. It's, it's it's tough for me to to hear about these stories, particularly in your case, Andrew, because the album was good. Like I really enjoyed it, as as did your fans when they eventually Thank got you. to hear it four Thank years you. later. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, it was you know, it was it's unfortunate, and I think this is a is it's one of many stories like this. But you can understand why there is such a distrust between the consumer. And the music industry at this point. I mean, I can tell you in our particular situation, we sold thousands of pre-sales for these records on tour and the record never came out. So there was this scenario for quite some time where there were all these Stellar Revival fans out there uh, who had paid us Capitol Records money and were waiting on a record. And it was just, you know, year. I think over a year went by and it never came out. There were no real updates. So it was this weird, awkward situation where we were trying to, you know, play both sides and, and let our fans know that we had hoped to get the record to them as soon as possible. We understand that they, you know, parted with some of their money to, to make that possible. So we wanted to do everything we could to get it to them. But we were also dealing with a record label that wasn't um, I guess, sure on what they wanted to do with our project. And it kind of left us in this awkward scenario. And, you know, fortunately the record is, uh, it's out there. You can go on to Spotify and hear it or iTunes and YouTube. It's there. And, and it is, it's a cool record. It's, it's got some great tracks on it. It's got some strong, uh, melodies, very strong melodies, good performances, excellent vocal performance. I think there's a lot, you know, to the record. It, it's unfortunate. It didn't get to see it's, uh, you know, moment in the spotlight. I think that had it been released, uh, on a bigger level, it probably would have gotten some love. 
But, you know, we, we were able to do a lot off of one single. I know the crazy ones was a top 20 rock song while it was out. Um, we, we got to play, like I said, tons of great festivals. We toured with some excellent bands. So we had momentum for a while and, uh, you know, just kind of hit that brick wall when that merger occurred. And, uh, I still feel bad for our fans. We still get emails all the time. I still speak to all the guys in the band, uh, people writing us, asking us, you know, are we going to do anything else? Are, are we playing still? Is there going to be more music? What happened? And, you know, it's a shame because I, I really feel bad for all those people that, that kind of really got behind our band and was hoping to support us through a longer career. But with that being said, we got to have a great time and uh, we played some amazing shows and in terms of myself as a musician i got to do most of the things i had hoped to do and uh, i'm very very happy and fortunate for those experiences i i have to say despite the fact that you know there were some bittersweet moments to it overall it was an amazing experience uh, you have a really refreshing attitude toward that experience i could imagine that many folks in your situation would have you know, come through it, uh, understandably embittered, but you seem to really find the good in what you were able to do. And, and I think at an attitude like that tends to be the, you know, the hallmark of people who become quite successful in whatever they do. So it, it's great to hear, uh, from you in that respect, Andrew. I appreciate that very much, Ryan. Thank you very much. You know, yeah, it's important. It's a, it's a tough industry. You know, if you're an artist going for it, you have to realize the odds are, are stacked against you. That's not trying to be negative or pessimist. It just is what it is. You have to be very creative. Um, if you're, if you're in a rock band in 2016, the odds are stacked against you even more. So, uh, the labels aren't investing in that genre. And so, I mean, in even uh, more straightforward of an example that we've talked about a lot, especially when we were on the Road Stellar Revival, is it makes more sense at this point for labels to not invest in rock financially because if you're going to put a rock band on the road, it costs so much to send eight guys in a van or a bus out on the road and pay for them to eat, sleep, and, and live as opposed to sending, uh, for instance, a DJ with a laptop and maybe a tour manager, maybe two people, and they can just get from gig to gig very easily and with a very low cost um, – you know, and travel costs and everything. So it, it makes sense financially why the labels aren't. Unfortunately, I think that art suffers in the long term and the younger generation isn't as interested in playing instruments and making rock music and making certain forms of uh, jazz and funk and pop that should still be given an opportunity in mainstream music. Unfortunately, the economics of everything right now are so tight that it's almost uh, pricing out that those genres of music from being pushed. I mean, now that you're a practicing lawyer and you do do uh, some entertainment law, um, uh, could you give any advice to the artists listening out there about uh, what to look for in an entertainment lawyer and um, you know, how to distinguish one that might be helpful towards you and one that might not be helpful? I would go back to your basic, you know, your basic instincts and see, do you, do you, do you trust this person? Does this person seem to get what you're doing? Do they understand what your goals are and can they help you realize those goals? And if, if an attorney's selling you maybe on a lot of things that they're telling you that they can guarantee you they can do, do a little of your own research and try to find out if that's true. I think, you know, the, the more due diligence that artists do on their own is going to protect them more than anything. So, yeah, and if you have other um, – peers or colleagues that you can speak to who have had specific experiences, that's always a very reliable, great way of going as well. Um, but I would definitely make sure they understand what you're trying to do as an artist and what your goals are. And if you're someone who's trying to jump into the major label system, you're probably going to want to find someone who is working with the major labels actively. If you're trying to find a career more in terms of you know licensing and sync and just singer-songwriter stuff and just getting music produced and out there, then you're going to look for a different type of attorney. Mm. But I would, I would uh, know what your goals are, 
have them very much, uh, you know, communicated clearly to the attorney and then see if they're able to help you with those and, and do your due diligence, look them up. There's the internet is amazing what you can learn about people. So just go on there and, uh, google.com. I'm sure you'll find everything you need to know. Uh, you've offered some tremendous insight, uh, over the course of this interview, just about, uh, how, uh, you know, tips for artists to help move their careers forward, pitfalls to avoid. Um, uh, before we let you go, are there any other just you know pieces of advice that you can give to the artists listening out there in any aspect of their entertainment careers or even mistakes or pitfalls they might want to avoid? Sure. This is uh, the one last piece of advice I've been thinking about, and it's kind of like a tough love advice. I, I, don't, I don't think that it's something every artist wants to hear, but I think it's necessary, and I think it goes to the character type of the artist as a whole, and this is what I say. I say know that this is what you want to do and make it, you know, plan A. Put some sort of plan B in place and that plan B doesn't need to be some grand scheme that you, you'll live off the rest of your life. But allow that plan B to also exist alongside your career as an artist so that you can fund your career as an artist. Because the one thing I'm seeing now more than ever is that there are a lot of well-funded artists out there. There are people, whether they have their own money from working or whether they have money from their families, whatever it is, there are a lot of artists out there who seem to have some sort of capital going into this. And if you're just, you know, a band in the middle of nowhere with you're not saving money to try and get on the road or get some new merchandise or get into the studio with a great producer, you know, you're you're definitely operating behind a lot of other artists. So I would say somehow get some money together. Have a plan B going because it is difficult, especially for my colleagues in the rock world. It's not a guaranteed thing that you're going to be making much money uh, in the next you know, few years. So definitely work on something else in colleague with the, the artist, uh, with the music you know, well, that's, dream. That's fantastic. And we do love the tough love around here. We, oh, we, yeah, it's, Im- we it's give the hard truths you know, on this important. podcast. Absolutely. It's important. I, yeah. So, I mean, to, yeah, to just, to sum that up, just get some money together because you're going to need it. It's expensive to become an artist nowadays. And, uh, if you're a artist creating music, get with a great producer, get in the studio, find someone locally. If you need to, who owns a studio, who's produced some records and start making music with them. Oh, that's a, a great insight. Um, thank you so much for being on with us, Andrew. Thank you very much for sharing your story and the experiences you've had and uh, best of luck with everything that you're doing, both creatively and professionally going forward. Oh, thanks, Ryan. It was great to be here and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Definitely. Please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again. All right. Sounds great. All right. We'll be right back on the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. If you like the show, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to reach out to us, shoot us an email at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Our thanks to Andrew Kusevitsky for joining us in the previous segment. I truly enjoyed that interview, and let me tell you why. Um, Aside from the great story that he told, and aside from the fact that it's just nice to get somebody who's experienced label life firsthand and share that guy's story with all of you. The fact that he was able to lay down some hard truths is always something we need around here. I love the guests who come at you with the tough love, who give you, who give you the unvarnished perspective on what the music industry is like, whether you're a label artist or an indie artist, it's tough out there. And whether you know all the, whether you have all the tools, whether you Um, you know, whether you're well-funded or not, whether you know how to promote yourself, whether you have good music, it's going to be a grind. It's not easy, even if you go indie. And so having someone like Andrew come out here and just, you know, let you know what you're in for is great. And, you know, as an indie artist, you should follow your dreams. And if you have something to say, if you have some great art to create, absolutely put it out there and, uh, you know, become part of this movement. 
but know that it's going to be tough. And I'm glad that Andrew is there to lay out the hard truths. A couple things from his interview that I found really intriguing and I think are worth emphasizing um, with a little more attention uh, now that he's no longer with us because I, I was, I thought they were great. The first one is the fact that, and granted, I've heard Andrew's story before. We've spoken about what's happened with him and Stellar Revival and Capitol Records before. And because I knew of his story, I wanted him to come on the show and tell it to all of you. But there was one detail of the story that I hadn't heard before. And we both heard it for the first time. And when he was telling me about it, um, this isn't a visual medium, so you know you didn't really get to experience it, but my jaw was maybe an inch from the floor. I was flabbergasted. And that was the detail of the fact that when this when this album was being shelved for four years by Capitol Records and Stellar Revival was outperforming, um, whether it was the hymn, the label, whatever, there were pre-sales of the album being conducted, which means that, you know, people were buying this album because, you know, the label was communicating, buy the album, pre-sale, it's a pre-sale, get your album, when the album is out, you'll get a copy of it. So they were telling people to get you know, this album ahead of time to get a, to get your pre-sale of the album when they never actually put out the album. And so to tell people, you know, this album's definitely coming out, get your copy now before uh, it's being distributed, and then not to distribute the album, not to release it to the public was just so dishonest to me. And I was shocked. It never occurred to me that they, that the label... I mean, you know, you know me, I'm not, I'm no fan of record labels, but the fact that they would go that far, Hey, everybody go get this, you know, buy this album. It's not out yet, but we're doing pre-sales and all these stellar revival fans. And there were a lot of them because they had a nice following, you know, bought the album in a pre-sale and then never got the album. It was just, I, it was flabbergasting to me. And it just underlines yet another frustration I have with the label centered music industry in which there is a gatekeeper role being played by the label in which the label stands between the artists who make the music and the consumers who want to hear the music and says, I'm going to decide whether or not you hear this music. And the artists might say, yeah, but I want the fans to hear this music. And the fans say, yeah, but I want to hear, uh, I want to play this music for my fans. And the fans say, ah, I want to hear that music. But the label says, nope, it's not cost effective because of our balance sheets or record label politics or mergers and acquisitions or a bunch of complex, weird music, whatevers. And then the label just decides it's not business. It's not prudent in our business interests to put out this album. So sorry, fans. I know you want to hear this album, but it's just not going to happen. And contrast that with the indie music model. You know, if, if Stellar Revival was in a position to put out this album independently, which they eventually did, thank goodness, and now we all get to enjoy it. You can get a copy of their debut album on iTunes. Um, that model is just Stellar Revival saying, hey, we made an album. And the fans saying, cool, let's hear it. Boom, it's on iTunes. The fans get to hear it. There's no barrier. There's no wall. There's no intermediary. It's just creators and consumers. And that's awesome. So that's the, the first thing about what Andrew said that I think um, was worth emphasizing a little more. The second thing, and he said it towards the end, and this really gets into the hard truth aspect of it. And he laid this out at the end of the interview, which is the fact that an indie music career costs money. And even in this music industry where creating, distributing, and marketing music is cheaper than it's ever been, because recording music is cheap. You can use things like social media to promote your music. You can, you don't need a you know, trucks and shipping and supply chains to get your music into stores. You can market directly to the consumer, but things still cost money. And one of the things that Andrew said is you need to have money to make your music career happen. And, you know, it helps to keep your day job as long as you can. So you have some capital coming in that you can use to fund your music career. And that's a hard truth. And what I want to just piggyback off his comment and say is don't let that necessarily scare you. Um, if you're not wealthy, um, that doesn't mean that you're never going to be able to have a successful career as an indie artist. There are ways for you to get the capital you need to fund your music career without necessarily, you know, having a rich uncle. And, you know, I talk about that a lot in the book, uh, shameless plug, break the business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. But if you kind of want to just if you want sort of just a quick summary of how you could conceivably have 
a career as a music industry, even if you're starting at $0 or just a few dollars, and eventually you have the capital to move your career forward because you can fund a tour or fund a, a fully produced 12-track album, it could go something like this. You start off with zero, but you know what you have? You have a home recording, maybe you got an iPhone camera, maybe you got an internet connection. You start creating some interesting YouTube videos, not just you playing a song, you know, not just you playing a song in your bathroom or something like that, but something that's intriguing, something that's interesting, something that makes people say not just, wow, that's a good video, but wow, that's a good fi- video, comma, I need to share with my friends. Um, so your video would have a hook, you know, think of like, okay, go doing that music video. Here it goes again, where they are all dancing on treadmills, you know, something that's going to make people want to share the video with others on Facebook. Once you start making videos with hooks, then you start building that following. Maybe, you know, you, you start getting that social media following because people start um, saying, wow, this, this guy's making some great stuff. Think of somebody like Ali Spagnola who makes all those videos where she plays popular songs um, in a one girl band setup where she plays the piano, the drums, the bass, all at the same time. People love these videos and share them. And now she's got, you know, something like 2 million Twitter followers. Once you get that kind of following, now you're in a position to start you know, making money from this group. What does that mean? It means crowdfunding time. You use that following of people. You create a slick crowdfunding campaign, either with um, Kickstarter, or if you want a more long-term crowdfunding arrangement, you look at something like Patreon. And now you can start getting the money you need from your fans who want to invest in your career because they love you. And now you have the capital you need to start funding albums, to start making more sophisticated videos, to start going on tour, to start creating merchandise, whatever you need to do. But the point is, and Andrew is absolutely, uh, Andrew Kusevitsky, our guest, was absolutely on point. You're going to need money to make your music career reach its full potential. But there are interesting ways to do it. And the music and the new music industry presents those ways to you through things like crowdfunding and social media. All right. So our thanks once again to Andrew Kusevitsky for coming on. He was awesome. Great stuff. And uh, I hope we can have him on again soon. Uh, Always good to get that tough love from somebody who's both a great musician and a fantastic lawyer. All right. So before we let you go for the week, uh, I want to talk about uh, something that happened in politics. And I preface this by saying that I pretty much categorically don't like to talk about politics on this show. You don't really care what my politics are. And this is not a political show. This isn't a debate show. Um, And, you know, I bet some of you probably even listen to this podcast to not have to listen to what the candidates for higher office are saying right now. But when politics mixes with music and uh, affects artists, then you know, it sort of has to be, we have to talk about it on this show. And we've talked a lot on this show in the past about politicians who are running for president right now, who run afoul of copyright law and who, uh, make videos or, you know, do things with the work of other artists that do not respect the work of those artists. And so, Uh, Here we are again with one of those scenarios, and I think we can learn, use the thing that has happened this week as a learning experience for all artists. So, Mike Huckabee, all right, (laughs) Mike Huckabee, a former governor from Arkansas who is currently running for president, he's seeking the Republican nomination for president of the United States, Uh, he's got the Iowa caucuses tomorrow, and he um, decided that he wanted to uh, help get some votes in Iowa. He's got the caucuses up coming up. And so he wanted to get some votes by creating an interesting, intriguing piece of YouTube content in which he took the Adele song. Hello, big monster hit. I believe it was the fastest music video to get to 1 billion views on vivo. And so our friend Mike wanted to capitalize on Adele's success by creating a spoof of that song in which he brings in a Adele sound alike and has her sing different lyrics to the song Hello uh, to make it a song that kind of pokes at uh, his rivals in the political race, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And so we end up with this, and I'll play a short clip of this uh, parody video that Mike Huckabee's Facebook page uh, recently created and released. There's just no difference between Obama and Hillary. Cocky. 
Okay, um, Bernie wins, you're going to die. Uh, that seems a little excessive, but yeah, all right, you know, fine, whatever. Um, so, yeah, that there's that. <laughs> and I'm not going to play the rest of this, uh, both out of respect for Adele and out of respect for all of you listening. I don't want you to be subjected to much more of uh, those uh, lyrics, quote unquote. Um, but that... You know, he, you know, but I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like make too big of a deal and like make it into a bigger thing than it is. Uh, because in the end, I think he was just going for a little humor and making a little joke. Um, so, you know, I don't want to knock him around too much for that. That being said, uh, he has taken a bit of a flack, uh, from the copyright world this past week for this video. Uh, in the last few days since he put it out, uh, it was muted by YouTube because it uses uh, Adele's song without her permission. Um, and then now it's uh, been taken off of uh, Mike Huckabee's YouTube page. I'm guessing somebody from Adele's camp uh, got to him and said, hey, stop it, you know, for the love of God. Uh, you know, Bernie wins, I'm going to die. It seems a little excessive. All right, anyway, uh, Huckabee went on Neil Cavuto uh, on Fox News and uh, you know, gave a, a bit of a defense to people who say that he shouldn't be allowed to use this work. You know, I'm not even sure that they contacted our campaign. It was only pulled down from YouTube. It's still up on our Facebook page. We have not taken it down because... Oh, whoa, this whoa, is Governor, 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 are you a lawyer? No, this is, this is protected free speech under the First Amendment because it's political parody. And political parody is protected. What? All right, so it is parody... First Amendment, therefore, I'm allowed to take Adele's song and, um, you know, completely change the words to make fun of Obama and Hillary. It is my constitutional right, says Mike Huckabee. Survey says... Wrong! Yeah, um, not quite the way the First Amendment works, uh, as, or at least any First Amendment I've heard of, uh, Mike. And granted, copyright law, and, you know, I should refrain from giving any solid 100% ironclad answers to any copyright law question, one, because we don't give strict legal advice on this show, um, you know, hence the disclaimer at the beginning of the program. And secondly, this area of fair use, First Amendment, it's a very wishy-washy area of law, and one judge might say one thing and another judge might say another thing, and so I don't want to give any ironclad, this is how this would come out if this went to court. That being said, if I had to pick a side, if I was the lawyer or if I was being, let's say both sides wanted me to represent them in some copyright infringement suit, and it was between representing Mike Huckabee and representing Adele, and I had to pick which one I thought would have the best chance of winning, like who has the best argument, Adele saying, you've infringed on my copyright, or Mike Huckabee saying, I have the constitutional right to use this work, I would want to take Adele's case over Mike Huckabee's case, and not just because it'd be super cool to meet Adele, which it would, um, but... It's just uh, Mike does not have a strong parody claim uh, for his song. And we'll talk a little bit about why right now, because it does articulate something that I think a lot of artists need to know, because a lot of indie artists like to make spoof songs, kind of like what Weird Al Yankovic does, where you take a popular song and change the words to do something funny. And that can be a great way to get to make videos that get you a lot of likes on YouTube uh, or sorry, get a lot of likes on Facebook, get a lot of subscribers on YouTube. It's a great way to move your career forward. So I understand the need and the desire to make spoof videos for artists, but you have to be careful because what Mike Huckabee has done is not going to be considered parody under most measurements. Um, and really it, it underlies what courts refer to in copyright law as the parody satire distinction. So parody can absolutely be a defense to copyright infringement. It's something called fair use. Um, if you make a parody of a song, for example, in, in the song context, you might be able to defend yourself against an infringement suit by saying that parody is fair use. However, courts have a very strict definition of what parody means. For something to be a parody, and this is important, the, the spoof that you're doing has to mock or make fun of or criticize the original work. The original work has to be the target of your spoof. That is different from what's called satire. 
in a satire, you're changing the words of a song, in this case, uh, to make fun of something completely unrelated to the song. Completely unrelated, nothing to do with the song. And uh, a common type of satire is what happens a lot in political campaigns where you change the words of a song to make fun of another politician. In this case, it was Mike Huckabee changing the words of Adele, uh, Adele's hello, to make fun of Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and to talk about the Iowa caucuses, all of which have nothing to do with the original song Hello, which is a song about heartbreak and longing and and uh, you know wondering if uh, the person you love is still thinking of you. Nothing. It's nothing to do with the Iowa caucuses. There's no line in there where Adele sings about you know going to Davenport and eating corn to try to attract some voters and talk about the benefits of ethanol subsidies. So um, this would be considered a satire and not a parody by most courts, and thus it would you would have a very hard time making a fair use claim here. So, uh, sorry, Mike, I would, if this went to court, I would not want to be the one that has to defend you. And in fact, there's actually a case that's pretty much on point to this one. If, uh, for you law nerds out there, look up a case called Henley v. DeVore. Um, this was a case in which Henley, as in Don Henley, uh, sued, um, this politician named Charles DeVore, who took the song Boys of Summer, uh, the Don Henley song, Boys of Summer, because he took, he took that song and used it to make fun of his opponent. He changed the words and made fun of like, or what it was his opponent. He made fun of Obama and he made fun of Nancy Pelosi, but didn't make fun of the actual song Boys of Summer that much. And so in that case, the court said, no, this is not a parody. It's a satire. And thus you are not entitled to fair use. And so, you know, that case is pretty similar to what's happening here with this Mike Huckabee song. So Mike, if I were you, just take it down. Like, you don't have a strong case here, pal. But so what does this mean for you as artists? If you're going to make a spoof video, be very careful about making sure that your spoof, you know, if you're, if you're going to make a spoof of a song, make sure that that spoof does not just target something completely unrelated to the work that, that you're spoofing. It has to make fun of the song itself. A good example of this, um, and you can look this up on YouTube. There's a song called Dear Future Husband, a feminist parody. Uh, Dear Future Husband, as you may know, is a Megan Trainer song in which she sings about, um, a lot of the message of the song is about, you know, if you're good to me, if you're a good husband, I will, uh, reward you with, you know, if you buy me flowers and you work hard or whatever, you know, you're nice to me, like I'll reward you. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be a good wife. I will, you know, give you lots of sex and, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm obviously not articulating the song as effectively as Miss Trainer does, but that's kind of what the song's about. And so a performer on YouTube, you can look it up. It's called Dear Future Husband, a feminist parody, you know, took the words of that song and changed them to criticize the song's message. And basically talking about how, you know, sex should not be something that you is a reward. Sex is a natural outgrowth of a relationship. And so, you know, the song kind of just goes on and on, ripping apart the actual Megan Trainer song. That's a parody. That's a case where if Megan Trainer were to sue this YouTube star and I had to pick a side as to which side I'd rather represent, I'd rather represent the parodist in that context. Um, so something to keep in mind with when you, if you're, if you're the kind of artist that likes to make spoof videos, be very careful with that parody satire distinction. And if you, and probably the best piece of advice is if you are contemplating making one of those videos for the love of God, please talk to a lawyer first, an experienced copyright lawyer, and make sure that what you're doing is going to have a strong fair use defense, um, in the event that you get sued. All right. Um, well, I should say one more thing before, before we go on, uh, a lot of you are probably saying, well, wait, 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 wait. Uh, this is the first I've heard of this. What about what Weird Al Yankovic does? Weird Al Yankovic, you know, he makes songs all the time, like, and he never gets sued. And you know what? A lot of his songs would not be considered parodies. They'd be considered satires. So how does he get away with it? All right. So first of all, yes, with Weird Al Yankovic, he calls his songs parodies, but many of them would probably be considered satires. He doesn't really make fun of the original song that much. He often takes the song and makes fun of something else. Like, for example, the song Amish Paradise. That was a, a spoof of Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio, in which he takes the words of the song to make fun of the Amish, as opposed to making fun of the original song. 
Um, songs like that could very well be considered satires by a court. Maybe they'll find some parody elements in it, but it could very well be considered a satire. So what does Weird Al Yankovic do? Why isn't he drowning in lawsuits? Because Weird Al always gets permission first. He always reaches out to the copyright holder and gets their sign off before he makes these songs. Um, even when he does have a strong parody case as opposed to satire case, he still gets permission because you know what? Even if you're going to win, getting sued is not fun. And so that's what Weird Al does in those situations to save his bacon. And it's a uh, food for thought for the rest of you who are considering this. All right. So that's the closest I'm going to get to political talk on this show because this is a music business podcast. And I thank you very much for listening to this music business podcast. Thank you to Andrew Kusevitsky for joining us in the previous segment. Be sure to get a copy of Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry available now on Kindle, on Amazon. Uh, Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next week on the Break the Business podcast. (laughs) 